welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-lister food writers. It's about life, culture and politics all through the prism of food. You can also find me on Food FM, the online radio station and global podcast platform which aims to change the world through food. This week I'm talking something probably quite new to foodies, Biblical Cuisine, with Ruth Nyman, who's become the go-to expert on Israel's ancient foods and recipes. Her first book, The Galilean Kitchen, captured the oral recipes passed down through the matriarchs of the Druze, Muslim, Christian and Bedouin communities in northern Israel, and won a Gourmand Award. Now her latest, Friqueh, Wild Wheats and Ancient Grains, is long-listed for an Andre Simon Award. Taking the meat out of some of the most unchanged recipes in living history, it's led to a fascinating contribution to the vegetarian canon. More and more people are going into a plant-based diet, and I think it's really, you know, it's really useful to be able to know that all these ancient grains and wild wheats can be done for modern eating. And she's a bit of an inspiration. She started by telling me how her food writing, which has taken her right into the heart of these ancient communities, is actually her third career. I came very late, actually, because I started a career in nursing. Um, And um, I spent a long time in the NHS, working my way up through the wards to become a ward sister and into management. But it was the management that I didn't want to be. I wanted to be a nurse. um, And the health service didn't sort of allow me to be that at that time. So I decided to leave and retrain um, into my other passion in life, which was food. So I went to Leith School of Food and Wine, um, but I actually, my sole aim was to set up a catering company. And that's what I did. I set up an, an outside catering company, which I really, really enjoyed doing, pootling around in a green van called Truly Scrumptious Catering. Um, and But I, I always felt that my roots were from Israel, which I know we'll get on to. Um, and so my food was very much of a Middle Eastern flavour. Um, and um, and I went round and I and North London, predominantly in Hertfordshire. Um, and I just catered for people's parties, for their weddings, for their bar mitzvahs, for anything that, you know, people wanted and some corporate stuff as well. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and but unfortunately, due to various health reasons, I had to give it up. Um, and so um, not unable to think of a life without working I moved into writing um, and I again I did another online food journalism course um, and came out with a distinction and thought right I can do this so I did and that's how I got into writing I I used to do some writing obviously with the business running a business you had to market you had to do all your telling stories people to you know to know about you so I I was used to writing um, but not in the way that I've managed to create sort of books since then. Yeah, but you actually self-published your first book, The Galilean Kitchen, uh, bringing together your fascination with Middle Eastern food. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But it went on to win a Gourmand Award, uh, which is fantastically prestigious. I mean, tell us about how you self-publish, because a lot of people are very interested in getting their stuff out there, whether to self-publish or not. Well, I mean, the actual idea for the book literally fell into my lap. Um, I used to go back and forth to Israel. um, And there was, um, at that time, I'd heard through um, quite a few friends of an Australian guy um, who had opened up a new um, sort of business called Galilee. 
Um, and he wanted to take to, predominantly tourists, but obviously some Israelis as well and, and, and nationals went to it as well. But he predominantly wanted tourists to come into northern Israel, which is where I knew and loved um, and, and lived for a while. Um, he predominantly wanted the, the, the tourists to come into the, to northern Israel, but to actually go into the homes of Arabic women who are just normal home cooks passionate about their food and get to actually understand what Arabic food homely Arabic food was about and so I participated in one of these workshops actually with my son um, and um, we got introduced to this wonderful Muslim lady called Nawal who I don't think I will ever forget because of the way she welcomed me into her home and showed me the food the Arabic foods that are indigenous to the land and and, and we started cooking so anyway, so I, I sort of did this workshop, absolutely loved it, and started realising that there was so much more to Arabic food and that actually the dishes were quite sort of similar, but with different nuances depending on the different religions and the different backgrounds and the different and the way they sort of were passed down through the generations. And as a result, um, this sort of idea of a cookbook came about. My original thought was to obviously try and get a publisher. Um, but unfortunately, when you're not very well known, it's very hard. They look at your Instagram follower figures these days. I mean, it's just ridiculous. If you're a celebrity and I couldn't really yeah. say yes. So dull. So, so dull. it was very, very difficult. Um, so I, I looked at self-publishing and um, decided that that was the only route I was going to get it to publication. Um, and... It was it was interesting because I actually did start crowdfunding and I did do a crowdfunding for it, which I would a, a lot of people have said to me sort of since, you know, oh, shall we do crowdfunding? I've heard that it's a good idea. I would really not advocate it for something like a book because actually you need a lot of people. You need people to really be working on it, to be marketing it, to be. And then once you've got your money in and you've self published your book, you then need to send it out and you need to incorporate all your postage and all the things that you don't really think about when you embark yeah, on one of these yeah. ideas. It costs a lot more than you think it's going to to cost. I mean, there are self-publishing companies now who do that all for you. Uh, they're responding to need. But at that time, you were doing it all. Well, it went on to get you a deal for your latest book, uh, Freaky uh, Wild Wheat and Ancient Grains, Recipes for Healthy Eating, which is still about that Middle Eastern food, the history of it and the religion uh, and culture. I know that you're a big fan of Claudia Rose and you listened to her interview on, on Cooking the Books recently. Um, tell us about her influence on the work that you do. Uh, she, I mean, she's a huge influence. I think she's a, 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 such an inspiration. Um, and she she does, obviously her work is throughout the Middle East and my background is purely Israel. Um, so I know a lot of different things to her, but all her, the way she, she, she talks about the stories of food, the people that in, that, that inspired her to write her recipes and to create her, her, her books are just fascinating. But the interesting thing, and, 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 you know, is that, and, and she talks a lot about the recipes and how she asks people for recipes to, to sort of, you know, to, to go back to their roots to, you know, to see how how the, the recipes themselves have inspire her. It was almost the opposite with the Galilean kitchen because there are no recipes. And going around um, 
talking to all the the, the women that, that that I did and the home cooks and they were from Muslim backgrounds and Druze background and there's some Christian and, and, and Bedouin, which obviously have a different nomadic lifestyle. You know, they don't have recipes. It's all in their heads. Um, and they're passed down through the generations and they were taught by their mothers who were taught by their grandmothers before them. And they're still passing it on to their children and grandchildren. And that was what was so interesting was that the galleon kitchen was actually for the first time putting some of these recipes that came from 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 their their, their mothers and uh, before them into actual recipes into a book because you know it when we were cooking it was very much a bit of this and some of that and you had to put it into how it would work as a recipe for the Western world. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the the new book. Of all the wild wheats and ancient grains, why did you choose frike as your title? Frike is a um, is a wheat, um, but that first really thought about in biblical times it goes back to the story, the book of Ruth, actually, um, and it was originally called Kali. Frike isn't the name of the wheat. It's taken from the verb to rub um, in Arabic. And it's a fascinating story that you tell of that. You talk about the ancient tribal wars, enemies coming in and raising the, the farming land to the ground. And the farmers going out and trying to gather what they could by rubbing the wheat and finding this young green kernel underneath. And it's that rubbing that, that gives it its name. Because it was the wheat was set alight, in order to salvage it, they 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 stopped the fire and they salvaged the the, the burnt husks and that you know it was charred, it was blackened, and they had to then rub it to get that char um, and chaff off it, and they they just continually did it so that they could re- and, and and actually as you say they revealed this green kernel underneath, but it's actually still the process still. Is, is that you smoke it in the fields like the ancient process. Um, and so you've still got this smoky flavour. And really, the fresher this, this frique is, the smokier it smells and the smokier it then tastes while it, when, once you've cooked it. It's a bit like a, a miracle food, isn't it? I mean, it feels biblical. You imagine the farmers going into the land and looking around them and seeing everything burnt by the enemies and they're rubbing it and... And out comes this amazing food that tastes incredible. I mean, you know, tell us, get, let's go into your first food moment to see what kind of thing you can do with frike. My first mo- food moment was when I actually found out what frike was. And that stems back to walking into the, the kitchen of Nawal from the Galilean kitchen, who had this silver tray. And I can still I can still see it now. It was a silver tray. And on it was sort of the, just these kernels of, of, of wheat. Um, I think there was a lemon. I think there was a little bit of sort of green stuff. Um, and it just sort of sat and an onion. I remember the onion. And it sat there and this was and, and I looked at it and I thought, well, what on earth are we going to be doing with this? Because I was used to couscous. I was used to bulgur wheat, but I didn't know what you were doing with a, a wheat, what looked like just a kernel of wheat. And but it was green and it was sort of this real olivey tinge. Um, and then she sort of said, smell it, smell it. And I smelt it. And there was this this smoky aroma that came from it. And I thought, wow, this is really quite exciting. And and then we cooked it and. And as I said, the the in you know 
the most important thing about cooking frike mm. is the broth. And I know that, you know, today we're not so, you know, we, we don't sit there cooking up stocks for hours and hours and hours necessarily because we don't always have the time. But in the olden days and back when they first, you you know, used frike in the 13th century, you know, it was about this broth and that, that had been on the stove for days and days. And 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 even the Arabic women today, a lot of them still use it. They put in their their chicken bones, mainly chicken, sometimes meat, but mainly chicken. And they create this beautiful, beautiful stock. And with that, they boil down the frike so it swells. Um, and it just has this wonderful sort of texture um, that's slightly nutty um, and still have a slight bite and this smokiness to yeah. it. And in fact, you, you quote the Muhammad bin al-Karim, an Islamic caliph in the 13th century, describing it as a porridge of new wheat cooked with meat. Can you do uh, a, a vegetarian version? I mean, I know you can, but did you find any of those recipes in your travels? In the Arabic um, communities, there are, you know, not so much, I have to admit, but 3K Wild Wheat and Ancient Grains is veg- only vegetarian and 3K and, and vegan recipes. So, um, mm. and actually the, the, the traditional with, um, 3K with pine nuts and, um, and, and slithered almonds, which is very traditional to put on the top, is done with a vegetable stock or even water flavoured with, you know, bay leaves and peppercorns and cloves or whatever you want to use. Mm. You know, that's your, it is vegetarian, it is vegan. It's only that people then add add um, often um, the, the meat from the stock or the chicken, you know, slight, uh, shreds of chicken that they will then put on to, to it to make it more of a sort of a, a, a meaty yeah. dish. So you do it in this one with pine nuts and almonds, for example. Yeah, and that uh, is a, a vegetarian, vegan, well, it's vegan um, because there's nothing in it that, that... So why did you choose to do that then? I felt that frique and grains and wheats does lend itself to um, a, a very well to um, a vegetarian or more important vegan diet um, and also with it being um, you know we, more and more people are going into a plant-based diet and I think it's really you know it's really useful to be able to know that all these ancient grains and wild wheats can be done for today's for modern eating um, and and I just felt it lent itself really really well to it. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a move away, isn't it, from the first book, uh, where you're capturing this oral storytelling and these recipes of these ancient communities who would have used the food from the land, which would absolutely have been meat and chicken based. You do the same um, with Galen's barley soup. Now, Galen of Pergamon was a highly acclaimed Greek physician. He was one of the most important early physicians, actually. We probably know Hippocrates as the father of modern medicine from the ancient Greek days. But Galen was probably the Roman successor and he wrote a huge amount about the the relationship between food and health, something that you've always been really interested in. As I say, I have been always very interested in 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 health and and, and eating because of my my background. Um, and you know, and, and and I was sort of totally when I was researching Galen and realizing that how he felt that you know the the, the sort of food and medicine almost blurred in his eyes, um, and that they were that that it was food. That that helped to, to gain this sort of healthy body, mind, and soul. Um, and you know, so I looked at his his 
soup, um, his barley soup, um, which was very, very basic. Um, and he believed that it really was the sort of the cure for all ills almost. Um, but it was a very sort of bland sort of a soup. It was just this barley that was cooked in, 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 in water so that it would swell. Um, and he added a little bit of dill and I think a little bit of dried leek. Um, but there was nothing, there was no flavor to it. Um, and, and I just sort of looked at it and thought, no, this must be a, there must be a healthier way of creating this delicious soup. So I sort of took it and, and I recreated it and added, you know, real leek in it and real dill and fennel and all these healthy, wonderful vegetables. Um, and her herbs and created this quite delicious soup using pearl barley. The third food moment is always fascinating. Bread, the role of bread. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. You, uh, you know, it was once the staple of everybody's lives. Uh, now it's a lockdown fixation. It's the, the domain of the middle class. You know, it's sourdough is a kind of an icon of, of middle class values, isn't it? It is also a big subject because of the endangered grains. Um, you know, talking about ancient grains has become a conversation about the early hunter-gatherers. It is a reminder of what we've lost. There are so many clues in bread to how we have become disconnected with history, with food from the land, with the ability to feed ourselves what's right in front of us and bake our own bread. All of that comes in your third food moment, Rambam bread. Tell us why you chose this and tell us what it's all about. Well, I think, I mean, what you say is very, very true is how we, we, we're now looking at, you know, the old ancient grains and what, how we're, we're using them in our, the basic staples of bread. And when I was doing my research and I was out in Israel, I, I actually visited a lot of different people, a lot of different bakers, artisan bakers who are using very different grains. And there was, um, the, 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 there's, there's the fifth generation bakers, um, who are using einkorn and they're putting them into sourdoughs and, um, and also the, the traditional challah bread. Um, and they're, they're selling them to, you know, restaurants of very high quality in the midst of Tel Aviv. Um, and, and, and that's what people are, are really coming into. Um, there's a bakery that I worked with that was just, that just used is spelt spelt grains um, and they don't actually grow spelt in Israel but they import them and then they mill them there um, but all their products are only with spelt which obviously has a, a, a lower gluten content so it reduces the bloating and aids digestion and this is why they're all becoming they're, they're re-emerging into our diet because they are so much healthier for you but but the um, Les Seidel was a really, really interesting man. He was a South African um, and he set up his bakery in the West Bank um, in Kanei Shamron. Um, and he was interested in the ancient Jewish breads, um, the show bread and the um, and, and all the different things that were once the Jewish breads that were once offered up to uh, uh, to the temples. And he wanted to to recreate them. And he actually built his own 
own brick oven, um, and which is what all his bread, breads and cakes and pastries are cooked in. Um, and was you know it took him about two years to actually build this uh, absolutely incredible ancient oven. Um, and um, but he talked about the the, the Ramban bread, which was from Maimonides, which is another ancient um, ancient philosopher who um, you know and. He, he, again, who believed that the health properties within breads, within foods, were you know were, were what we should be eating. So he 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 wouldn't give me his recipe. He refused point blank. This was his secret, and he was sticking to it. Um, and that was fine. But he did actually give me this delicious, delicious loaf, and it was made with whole gra- uh, whole whole wheat bread, uh, uh, whole wheat grain. Sorry, and um, and he put in the herbs. But again, they'd go foraging in the in in the Judean hills for 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 all their different herbs, and they weren't just sort of a bit of thyme or rose me whatever they were sort of the ancient bible hyssop and and azatar and all these wonderful herbs that he then created into a recipe to put into this delicious bread and and it really was quite a, a, a an amazing moment to sort of taste this bread and realize how it goes back through the years to these ancient philosophers who actually believed that this was how you know how to eat healthily yeah a lot of the modern bakers, a lot of the bakers on Instagram as well, um, talk about einkorn and Emma as grains that need to be saved. Um, Dan Saladino writes about a whole chapter about them in, in Eating to Extinction and talked about it on, on Cooking the Books. When you were talking to people like Les um, in Israel, was there a sense that this is a tradition and a foodstuff that absolutely needs to be saved? Do we need to, you know, are they are they are they feeling like this is an endangered food? Yeah, very much so, because what they're what they're doing and there's a lot of talk out there and it, it really is very interesting, actually, is um, it's it's about the biblical cuisine and the biblical cuisine is making a comeback. Um, and there is, um, and again, I, I visited this biblical nature reserve, Neot Kedumim, um, and it's in the middle of um, the Judean hills. And again, they're, they're, they're working um, so hard on recreating the foods that were eaten in biblical times and foraging for all these, you know, indigenous plants that are still being grown. And, you know, when, when I was listening to Dan Salandino, he talked about going to Turkey, where he had, where they were growing Emma. Emma grows wild in northern Israel, um, and you know, each spring, you you know, on your simple walks through the, you know, in the Golan Heights and at the foothills of Mount Hermon, you will see wild barley, wild um, Emma wheat just swaying in the breeze um, because that's where it naturally grows. Unfortunately, the biggest problem with wild Emma and, and, and some of the others is they don't yield huge amounts. And that's why it's difficult to work with them on a very large commercial basis. Which goes back to what we were talking about, food for the middle classes into the artisan bakeries. I mean, what is the relationship between those those ancient grains that are growing freely and the people who are living around them? I mean, here in this country, you know, though the poor went to the cities, they went out of the land to the cities. But actually, in the rest of the world, that's not necessarily the case. Do 
the do the working class people the farmers do they pick their own grains yes and and actually they're interestingly enough what they're doing in 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 israel is they're going back to the ancient grains and starting to grow them um to to try and develop the yield so that they can actually use them i mean karasan which is another wheat uh, wild wheat that i talk about in the book um again there, there, there there's a lot of work with the farmers that are going back to 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 growing um, karasan out there and trying to use them, but you know, but it's but also what you were saying is is very interesting because back in 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 the Middle Ages it was very very interesting that it was the white bread that the rich ate and believed was this pure white bread that must be the best for them and they sort of almost threw the 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 whole grains to the poor and the needy and the infirm. And actually, it was doing them a lot more good, but they weren't realizing it because they didn't think it was, you know, it was it was white. It was pure. It had to be better for you. So we've actually been, you know, through the ages, we've been sort of, you know, realizing that what we're eating actually isn't always very good for us. But if you've got money and if you think it looks better or it, you know, it. It's worth buying. Trendy, it's certainly, do- and trendy, but it certainly doesn't taste better, and it certainly isn't healthier for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your final food moment is, I mean, what we would call local seasonal. Again, trendy, zeitgeisty, but it is an example of eating what's available, what was absolutely around before supermarkets. And it's amazing to think that supermarkets have really only been around since the 1970s in most of the Western world. Um, and in many countries, they, they still are not the place where most people shop. But it feels like we've completely lost that essential idea of eating what is available, what's right in front of us at the time of year. Frique stuffed grape leaves is an example of absolutely using what's around you tell us about that one well grape leaves are grown throughout the whole of the middle east and and you know they every every cuisine has it throughout you know the middle east and mediterranean has their own version the greeks have their dolmades and you know the turkish have their version and you know we all have a version of a, a, a of how to stuff a grape leaf but actually the the history of grape leaves are very very simple it just goes back to the siege of thebes in in, in egypt and at the time of alexander the great and there was no food anywhere they were the, the people of, uh, were starving and grape leaves grow everywhere and anywhere um, in nooks and crannies and on the roadside and on the hills you can find them everywhere but you can also find them obviously in people's back gardens and here in 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 England obviously a lot are grown on on allotments um, and so people would just literally grab a grape leaf and find whatever they could whatever morsel of meat or scraps whatever it was put it in, stuff it, and just, it was a, it was a form of sustenance. But out in Israel, grape leaves are very, very, um, well, they're, they're very common. People grow them all the time in their back gardens. It goes back to the Bedouins who, um, who, who sort of feel that they're, that, you know, that they want to eat from the indigenous produce that they grow and natural foragers. Um, and so I, when I, one of the first dishes that I learned to cook was actually grape leaves from some a Druze woman uh, garden we picked them we then went back into a house we blanched them and it traditionally they're used with rice and actually you start cooking it with raw rice um so I decided that there was no reason why we couldn't do it with free k but actually it took me quite a number of time of goes at it because raw free k doesn't cook 
the same way as raw rice. So the the way I did it was I actually cooked the frique first and then did it and stuffed it the same way. And actually, it really is a very, very lovely way of eating both frique, but also the, 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 the traditional dish. Yeah. Now you do supper clubs and you were supposed to do a supper club here with me at my house in East Sussex as part of cooking the book supper clubs before we got cancelled because of Omicron. Uh, we are going to rearrange it. We haven't yet sorted the date, but if people sign up for my newsletter at jillysmith.com, uh, we will get a date in there in the next uh, edition of the newsletter. Tell us what kind of food you will be putting on at that supper club and what you do at your normal supper club. Well, what, what I do is, um, you know, I, I want to sort of show um, everybody what you can do with all the different grains and you know they're they're they're, they're so versatile um, and and you can use them in sweet you can use them in savory so what I was hoping to do is create a menu that would take all the different wheats and grains from from the book and and show you how how delicious they can all be with galen soup with frique bread with um, tarts made from rye um, and um, and and you using um, uh, all, all different sort of cronachin, which is, again, got rye flakes in it, but you can use barley, you can use wheat. So it, and, and frique salads that have been traditionally made um, by Arabic women out in the fields. And so it was a, it was a sort of a whole sort of gamut of all the different grains um, that are in the book um, and, and frique, obviously, um, but also showing you how they've sort of merged from the, the old traditional recipes into innovative contemporary ideas for modern eating. Yeah. And of course, at my supper club, we it's all about the story as well as the food. Do you think that makes a difference? I mean, your book is absolutely packed with with stories of where this food comes from and what it represents in, in different religions and to different tribes over history. Do you think it makes a difference when people actually connect with these stories? Do you think it makes them change the way they eat? Totally. Absolutely. It's it's so... The stories make make it happen and you know I, I talk a lot about going from the land to the plate and to my mind that is that's how you understand what you're eating and the whole there's a, the, the whole thing about frique to me is the way it's actually processed the whole um, annual harvest that goes on and I've witnessed this firsthand going into the field seeing the old traditional sickles that they they cut the frique the wheat it, um, at at the exacting point of where they know they need to cut and at the right time of the season before you know just after the 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 the, the, the main rains of the winter and you know and then smoking it in the field watching them smoke these fields and beat them down and seeing the blackened husks at the you know thrown onto the the tarpaulin on, on, on the ground and then it it just makes it all so you're, you're you're actually what you're eating you can actually visually sort of see how it's all come about and and again at sort of the talks and the supper clubs and and even in the book the photographs make tell this story and and that's what i i want to do i want to be able to give people the you know the food that of 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 the land but actually see at the same time while they're eating how it's got to their plate from the land to the plate 
I mean, it's a perfect circle, isn't it? It started with the oral storytelling, then passed down through the matriarchal line. Um, do you find that they are being passed down again to people who come to your supper clubs? Are they passing them on? Do you see them uh, being shared on Instagram, for example? I, um, I do. Um, I think people are very interested. I think this. I think it's unfortunately to a lot of people, it's very new, and I think that's it, it's really getting that message out there. I think a lot of the people, you know like yourself like a lot of the you know other food writers that you know and 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 foodies you know they are beginning to know they know about them or they're beginning to know about but a lot of people don't know about them and by coming to the supper clubs by coming to the talks by tasting the food I think it gives them their inspiration and and so many people say to me well can you know are they readily available well the answer is yes you know everything is ready available now I mean okay not every supermarket might have it but a lot of the corner shops we have continental shops you can get anything online from anywhere well thanks to them the ways of immigration that have come into Britain at least you know we now have fantastic uh, products from all over the world. And, uh, you know, Frike is absolutely a staple of Syrian uh, diet, for example. That's how I know it so well. I did a whole programme about the Syrian refugees coming to Brighton um, and very much a part of their diet. Give us an example of where we can find it online. Um, well, Zaytun is a very good and that's a Palestinian company. Um, it, it's an NGO. So, you know, it really is is is, is putting Again, it's it's bringing the products that the people are actually producing, and it's putting the money back into them, which is really really important. Um, but um, I always forget how this pronounce Bella Zoo. Um, they also sell it, um, and just generally a lot of whole food shops, um, whole food online, um, whole food earth. They all have it. Planet Organic sells it. Even Holland and Barrett, you can get it. I I personally feel that, you know, some of these places, it's slightly it feels more authentic because you actually can see through the packet that it's greener rather than it just looks like a kernel of wheat. You take it out the packet and it smells of uh, uh, smoky. Um, and that is true, authentic um, frike. But look, try it, go for it, put it with, a, you know, a vegetable stock, a chicken stock, bit of onion, spices, you've got a great staple, and it accompanies meat, fish, whatever. And it's good for you. It's it, it's really healthy. So I would, I would say go for it. Um, and um, I will hope to be talking more and doing more supper clubs um, once once we're, we're allowed to reconvene um, our normal lives again um, and really inspire people to use these ancient grains and wild wheats from our from our ancestors. Thanks for listening. Please do get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And sign up for my newsletter at JillySmith.com to find out about the Cooking the Books supper club at my house. And I'll be back next week with Jenny Ridgewell, whose book I Taught Them to Cook is a hilarious tale of teaching kids to cook in a comprehensive school in East London in the 1970s. Mm-hmm.